You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. What's that sound? Wow, it's the... Sound of intellectuals convening. Yes, the sound of intellectuals convening. I don't know where they are, but they must be nearby. (laughs) They must be. I don't know. It's the sound. Well, folks, that must mean it's time for another Sanity Shelves, the type of episode of the show where we talk about books we've been reading. We had a really fun part one because we haven't been able to do these for a while, so we accumulated a lot of books now we are dumping them dumping them them. i should say another book that i read before we get like jake has like 19 books that he's been reading and we look forward to hearing about those but i read no more heartburn by sherry rogers md did that solve your heartburn i think it's helping actually i haven't finished it actually i only read the first chapter, but then the first. <laughs> <laughs> I read it. Well, I haven't finished it. Well, I only read the first chapter. Well, the list, the first chapter has the all the stuff that you're supposed to do, and she says if that doesn't work, then like this is going to solve ninety percent of the cases or whatever the figure is, and then if it doesn't, read the rest of the chapters. So I've been actually implementing those things, and basically it's a what do they call it? An exclusion diet. Uh, you know, you, yeah. can, you try and figure out what's causing the heartburn. She thinks it's a very treatable thing. She's anti-medical intervention for the most part. She thinks everybody's body is different and everybody needs to sort of figure things out instead of just using the same three acid inhibitors and proton pump inhibitors and stuff like that. I've struggled with heartburn and GERD and acid reflux for much of my life, including... What's her name? uh, Sherry Rogers, MD. She's like the... One of the heartburn ladies. So it's a good book. I dare say there's probably some of our listeners that struggle with heartburn. And mm. I'd say you could do a lot worse if you're just the kind of person that pounds Tums all the time or has been on protein, proton uh, pump, protein, proton pump inhibitors for a long time or something like that. You could stand to read this book. I mean, I just sort of decided it was a thing that. I was going to suffer with forever and I needed to just find the right medical cocktail. And that's what I did for many years. But as soon as I stopped doing that and started trying to figure it out, I found like, I haven't quite figured it out, but I think I'm honing in on some things, like just some triggers for what it is. And it's like, oh, I could probably do this. Like there's probably actually a way to just not live with this or at least greatly reduce it just by changing my diet a little bit, not in a way that's even super restrictive because like for some people it'll be like caffeine causes it so you can't have caffeine but you could still eat all the pizza you want right like everybody's body is different so i think some reason people maybe don't pursue actually solving the problem is because they're afraid they see the lists of things that you have to give up and they're like okay well i'll never eat chocolate again i'll never eat fatty foods again i'll never have another steak i'll never have any more salt just give me the meds yeah just give me a gun Right. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's the case, actually. I think it's actually something that you can kind of figure out if you're willing and probably still enjoy the things that you like in moderation, as you should. So this is not a medical show, and I'm the last person in this room and on this podcast you'd want to ask for any kind of medical advice. But if, if, you, if that's something that you happen to struggle with, 
you might try the book, No More Heartburn, Sherry Rogers, Medical cool. Doctor. That's a book I read. Pretty exciting opening for this podcast. Uh, what, else, what else we got, guys? So I've got a lot. So I'll just keep going through the list. As I, so I read, uh, I listened to the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. So this is, uh, Naval Ravikant is a, a, uh, one of those people that like is considered by a lot of people to be one of the brightest and best in people out there. But he he's an angel investor. He's pretty private. He keeps to himself. But sometimes he gets, you know, he's in interviews or he'll have tweet threads or Instagram things or whatever, or a little podcast. And the almanac of Naval Ravikant is somebody taking a bunch of, you know, tweet threads and clips from interviews and things like that and assimilating them into a kind of like the wisdom of Naval kind mm-hmm. of thing. Huh. But Naval's one of those people, like he's in the category of like, he's one of the people that advised Elon Musk to buy Twitter. You mm. know, he's like one of the, like he moves in those circles. Um, and he's the kind of person that Elon Musk would look to for advice, right? He's like that. He's like Jack Dorsey. He's like, but he, you just might not know his name. And that's on purpose, I guess, or that's part of his thing. So I mm. thought, well, this will be interesting and it's short. I think Ravikant calls himself a rational Buddhist, and that's basically what the book is. It's a mishmash of Buddhism and Stoicism uh, in little bite-sized chunks. Hmm. Um, Sounds terrible. uh, You know, there are some real pearls or helpful thoughts in there, but yeah, it is what it is, and some of it's terrible and some of it's interesting or insightful. Just like, you know, reading Marcus Aurelius is going to have like, well, that's one way to think about the fact that, yep, we're all going to die. Sure you know, whatever. Right. So you you take it on its own terms is what it is. It's not, there's nothing really super special about it, but there are going to be some, you know, some good insights or pearls of, of, of wisdom. It's just, yeah. So that was, that was one that I, I listened Mm. to and that, that that's available for free. Um, yeah, I just found it for free. Yeah. So let's see. Um, so I read that one. I've been reading, I, I went back to Chesterton, actually, I think probably inspired by Taleb a little bit, hmm. but I've been reading Orthodoxy with my men's discipleship group. Orthodoxy, Chesterton's best. If you want to read Chesterton, I think that's the place to start. I don't know how many times I've read that book for myself or with other people. Hmm. This is the least taken I've ever been with Chesterton. It's the least, the, the most I've gone through Chesterton. Is, it's been like, man, I wish you didn't feel the need to, need to be so cute. <laughs> all the time. I'm really tired of the straw men. I'm really tired of the circumlocutions. Um, I'm really tired of some of the cuteness here. And so I don't know how much of that is just like, well, you've mined Chesterton and incorporated him into your life so much that, you know, all your that's all you're left to hit up against. It's like you watch Hamlet for the 9,000th time and the to be speech is actually the most boring part because you've thought about it, you've gone over it, you've had to you've memorize memorized it for high it, school. Yeah. Yeah, so this like, yeah, and how much of it is, you know, just like, uh, I'm not really annoyed with Chesterton. I'm annoyed with all the cheap, horrible, stupid imitations of Chesterton and, uh, uh, you know, whatever. So anyhow, that's just how Chesterton sent me this go around. And I think some of it too is like, you know, he's just like, the guys in my discipleship group don't have time to sit and puzzle out Chesterton. They're um, just blue collar working guys that it's not, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to them. It's not Chesterton's fault. He was writing with the idea that his audience would 
enjoy and get some sort of entertainment value even out of And they do. They're like, oh, he's funny, you know, but also it's like, yeah, I had to read this one page 10 times, but I got the joke and it was funny. But that's the kind of thing. It's just like, well, man, I don't know that I have. Yeah, it's just, it's not really a guy that I find myself, I mean, I would recommend C.S. Lewis a long time before I would recommend Chesterton because C.S. Lewis is clear and easy to read, even in his more academic moments, something like, uh, whatchamacallit, the best C.S. Lewis book, Abolition, Abolition of Man. Abolition of Man. Like Abolition of Man, which people do find challenging, is so relatively short and simple and to the point and the metaphors and circumlocations as such as they are, are so impactful that it's just a beautiful little book. And Chesterton is just a lot and it is difficult. I'm glad I read him. I'm glad I soaked in him. Like when I did, I think he's probably responsible for some pretty formative for, for all of us. Like if, if you like the wisdom on this podcast, like Chesterton's part of it. So I don't really want to knock him. Right. But yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I read Robert Alter's, uh, a commentary on Ecclesiastes. I love Robert Alter. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he is a pagan, I think, Cal Berkeley uh, Hebrew scholar. And he's at this point translated and provided commentary on the entirety of the Old Testament. I I love it because he he has such a grasp of the Hebrew and the Hebrew language and, the understand, and understanding of Hebrew poetry that he really enriches a reading of... Uh, of any book. So I, I love to just pick a book of the Old Testament, read it with his, because his commentary is actually pretty sparse um, and mostly focused on on the language. His commentary on Ecclesiastes is not his best and, uh, and probably the most dangerous of any altar commentary I've read. So caveats, it, but there are still some really good insights. So huh. here's one for you. We all know... Uh, how Ecclesiastes opens, vanity of vanities, yeah, right? Or meaningless, meaningless, depending on your translation. And he he talks about in his commentary, these are concept words. The Hebrew is not concept words. The Hebrew is breath. So he translates it uh, merest breath mm. because the word is breath. And the reality is we regularly substitute concept words uh, where God uses concrete metaphors. In scripture and trains us to think concretely and with concrete metaphors. And when we do that, we rob ourselves of the richness of the metaphor and we rob ourselves to have, of the opportunity to have our, our thinking and teaching shaped by concrete metaphorical, metaphorical language that God uses. And we miss some of the connections that God intends us to make, right? So if you think breath there in that first line of Ecclesiastes or vapor, you know, it, 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 and you're getting at the transience of it. Okay, well, that's part of it. But what is he also doing in that first chapter? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is cyclical. Everything repeats. Guess what else is mindlessly cyclical and endlessly repetitive? Breathing. And so there's a richness to the metaphor, Mm -hmm. both the transience and the cyclical repetitive nature of things that is there in breath that's missed because we just think in our sort of like modern rationalistic post-enlightenment world that the conceptual translation is the better one mm-hmm. because we, we've got this sort of like intellectual bias and it's like, well, no, actually it's not, it's not better. And he does that sort of thing. Uh, has those kinds of like insights into the Hebrew poetry or whatever of it all. 
uh, regularly in his commentaries that I just find, man, this is just really, this guy's really worth reading. And he's a pagan. He's got, he has no respect for the authority of, uh, of scripture or anything like that whatsoever. But he does understand language and translation in Hebrew. And so I just find him really interesting. You're making me think of Tolstoy again. What we should have said is if you're going to read or listen to Tolstoy, you should get the Piver and Volkonsky translation. Mm-hmm. And the reason is actually similar to what you're talking about. Often when anyone is translated, the translators translate up. They clean up vulgarities. They make things more palatable. They make things that are difficult. They, they choose an interpretation. So with yep. Tolstoy, what Piver and Volkonsky have tried to do is say, Tolstoy was actually bad here. He was using a vulgarity or he was using bad grammar or he was describing something in a way that doesn't make sense. And we're going to assume that Tolstoy is such a genius that our job is actually to, as best we can, get that to you in English. Mm-hmm. Like, and then let you deal with yeah. it. Yeah. And then let you deal with it. Like, yeah. why was he weird here? Why was he grammatically incorrect here? Why, like, that's something that we want to give you the ability to actually engage with Tolstoy on as opposed to doing all the work for you and not even letting you know those kinds of things were in there. Absolutely. And and that's something that Alter is constantly doing where he's like all the other, all these other translators are are trying to pick interpretations. But actually we're talking about poetic language here. We're in the Psalms or we're in Song of Solomon or we're someplace like that. And actually maybe part of the point is the ambiguity. Maybe part of the point mm-hmm. is the elasticity of the metaphor. Maybe part of the point is for you to do the work of the interpretation. Mm. I'm just going to try to preserve that as much as I can. And that's like, yes, I believe in that kind of translation. Yeah. So I love Alter. He does come with caveats, especially, you know, your relative maturity and experience with sort of pagan biblical criticism. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't focus on that in his commentary, but he does just sort of matter of factly like, well, we know that this is probably not written by this guy and this whatever, you know, right. that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's Alter on Ecclesiastes. I read a book called 4,000 Weeks. I started it. I finished it. It was short. It was really just an extended meditation on life is short. Make the most of it. You're going to die soon. It was a couple hours long. Uh, 4,000 weeks is the amount of weeks you have uh, if you live to be 80 years old. And so it's just like, Hey, have you thought about it this way? 4,000 weeks to live if you're 40, 2,000 weeks. How are you going to make the most of your life? That sort of thing. It's fine. Whatever. I don't remember anything else about it. It's an extended meditation of you're going to die. Just accept it. Don't live in denial of it. Tally it up and figure out how to make the most of it. Because guess what? You're going to die. So no recommendation there. Just I take that box. You don't have to. (laughs) <laughs> That's all there is to it. You've got the concept now. Go and use it. It was highly recommended. I, uh-huh. There are only a couple of podcasts that I listen to, and one of them is Peter Atia's The Drive, and that was one of his top recommended books of the year. Peter Atia is just a, a former oncologist who focuses on just health, wellness, longevity. Yeah, interesting guy. I've listened to a couple on your recommendation. Yeah, yeah he's an interesting. He, he's yeah. interesting, and I think he's pretty sober about the science of things and. I listened to y'all ever done the prophet by Khalil Gibran. I started it once. Or seen it around. Yeah. 
the have, most have pretentious, blasphemous little bit of poetry in the world. You understand why like people buy into it and think it's really something, but also in, in, in a sort of demonic way, this, it is compelling, but it's also like pretentious and blasphemous and horrible. Oh, I hate these books. I think of, I put this in the same category with- The uh, Little Prince. Little Prince or- That's what I uh, do. Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist, or if that's how you say his name, or Jonathan Livingston's Seagull. This kind of, um, there's just a certain kind of person. Oh, I don't know. It's like Betty Draper in Mad Men buys this book. Cause right. Because she's, she's bored. <laughs> You well, know, the, the, she, she, she wants like, to understand something new and something mystic and something right, yeah. like my grandma and grandpa, they were like good Easter and Christmas Catholics. And these, these are the kinds of books that would end up on their shelves. Just like some feels kind of deep, but right. ultimately it doesn't make you have to like do anything or be anything <laughs> different, but you, you, you've. Yeah. It, it, so yeah, it, you feel enriched. But it's actually just empty calories. It's nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, this is just one of those like, I'm out of credits. And what are the top recommendations of free things on Audible mm. that are going to be short and buy me enough time to get to next month's credit? And that's that's what happened with that one. So the next one though is another is one of those books that's worth talking about. It's Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm. This is one of those books that you've seen on shelves. You've seen featured. Every time you walk into Barnes and Noble, it's always stocked. You've had it recommended to you a thousand times in either Audible recommendations or Amazon recommendations or people talking about this book. You've just seen and heard it and seen and heard a lot of things downstream of it. And it really is, I think, I, you know, I'm slowly working through it, but it is the foundational work on the relationship between intu- intuition and rational thought. So whether that's Malcolm Gladwell's Blink or any Chip and Dan Heath book, or Cialdini and Influence, which I talked about on the last episode, is going to interact with Kahneman's work. People are interacting and building off of Kahneman's work. Uh, The idea fundamentally is you have system one thinking and system two thinking, the things our intuition knows better than our rational minds, and then the ways that our intuition fools and subverts good sound reason. You know, it's little little things like, uh, how many of each kind of animal did Moses take on the ark? Two. Yeah. And the reality is what? Moses didn't take anybody on the ark. <laughs> I knew there was something like that. There's a trick, yeah. right? And it's because your brain takes shortcuts and associates Moses, Bible, whatever, mm-hmm. and does not think and process that question. And that is your brain being lazy and taking the shortcuts and the intuitive shortcuts and getting you in trouble, right? But there are virtues in those shortcuts that your brain takes. A bat and a ball cost ten. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Ben, this is your job. I'm not walking into another one of these. Do, just sorry, do it. You have to do it one more time. A bat and a ball costs a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? They're being sold together. The ball doesn't. No. No. Yeah. Oh, this one's sorry. It costs some. Um, oh man, my brain won't work. The correct answer is ninety-five cents. But your yeah, intuition says a dollar. It says a dollar, but I knew that wasn't right. Right. The correct answer yeah. is 95 cents. But, yeah, okay. Or, yeah. Yeah, that's right. 95 or cents. Or 95 cents for the bat. No. Nope. No. I still did the math wrong. No. Um, A dollar and five cents for the bat. And five cents for the five ball. Five cents for the ball. Yeah, I had the, the five that's cents right. for the ball right, that's right. That's in right. my head, but yep. my brain still went to that dollar. Yeah. Right? And it's just that, that, that sort of thing. 
but it's both the virtues of our intuition, our quick intuitive decision-making, and then all the places that trips us up and is wrong and messes with our minds and allows us to be influenced and allows us to be manipulated and allows us, it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's well done, well told, well constructed. Huh. It's worth hitting up against. It takes more time because it's more rich. It's more like, it's, a close, it's closer to Taleb than anything else. You just gotta like take your time with it and process it. Um, but it's actually worth hitting up against the source material on this one and not having it chewed up and spat out down the line, I mm -hmm. think. So there's that one. Yeah, and probably a bunch of our listeners have already listened to this book and or read it and have have hit up against it. I know I'm late to the party on it, but it's a party worth coming to better late than ever. The next one is pretty fun. It's Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock. Hmm. So that was another free pickup on Audible. Again, out of credits, looking for something. I've heard some interviews with Hancock. Uh, I find him interesting. Uh, he's described usually as a crypto archeologist or a crypto geologist. He was a journalist first. Um, the thing with Hancock is he's enamored with the idea that there was an advanced global civilization that predated modern history. And that was wiped out by this universal thing we see show up in every tradition on multiple continents called a flood. So he does things like, and this is like, it's really fun. Like, this is like your conspiracy theorist brain will trip out on this. But he does things like he explores ancient maps that predate the exploration of the Americas or the, or the discovery of Antarctica or the discovery of Madagascar. And yet those places are on the maps, like in detail, or so he claims, right? They're maps that were copied from more ancient source maps that maybe traced their way to places like the library at Alexandria that was burned. But you have like these like medieval map makers that are just like taking source maps and making maps. And then you've like Antarctica's there or hmm. Madagascar or the or South America's there for some reason. And nobody knows why. This is before Columbus or anything like that. Um, so he's like, he's fascinated with things like that or with the legends and rumors of a civilization that fell into the sea with Atlantis, um, the connections between the Egyptian pyramids and the religious cults with Mayan and Aztec and Incan pyramids and cults. And why do they have the same style of boat making and the same style of pyramids and the same precision? And how does any of this all make sense? And how, if you lined it all up, how, like, why does, who's asking these questions? Um, these big geological conundrums where things are supposed to have happened over advanced experience, uh, uh, vast expanse of time. And yet there's some evidence that things happen very rapidly in a cataclysmic event. Uh, it's all interesting. Sometimes it's really tenuous, but it's fun. It engages your conspiracy theory brain. It's like, you know, he's just trying to, in a lot of ways, he's asking the right sorts of questions. No, but really, how did the, how did they build those pyramids? Mm -hmm. Like uh, really, why, why do, why, why do the pyramids line up? Why are they coordinated to the stars? Why, uh, why do the traditions why do the gods, why do the legends, why do they match? Why do the, what's, what's with all these, why does every culture seem to have some kind of weird flood story where somebody's like, you know, one couple ends up in a box of some kind and on a mountain and has to repopulate the earth and they take the animal. Like, why does every, why, like, come on guys. Like, don't you think maybe there's something to this? Like, I don't know. Um, but he goes down some pretty fantastic roads, sure. but. <laughs> fantastic in the sense of, 
fantastic coal, not like, right. yay, awesome. Yeah, I mean, some of it is kind of <laughs> awesome, right? And some of it is going to line up with like uh, your answers in Genesis, people, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever else. Sure. But it's fun. Why, why does, why, why, what are all these stories about giants about? Like, or what are all these stories about dragons about? Or, I don't have fun with that book. I mean, I've seen that book my whole life because I love the supernatural and I like horror stuff and all that. And so I, I, you know, I would always find myself wandering somehow past the occult section of, right. of bookstores and libraries. And well, this, this is one of those books, like the Mothman prophecies, like any number of other things I could name. That's just always, you know how like at a bookstore, there'll be the books that are folded in and then there'll be the books that are like yeah. presentational. I don't know what you, what they call it, but this yeah. book is always the book that's out there. It's just like a yeah. classic. And so here, here's the other fun thing about listening to him on audible is he reads it himself mm-hmm. and he's British and he is a fantastic reader and a fan, like, and he really believes and he's got a wonderful accent and a wonderful voice. So it's just like, he is really compelling to like, and really fun to just, just maybe I'll, I'll give you a taste. Although I'll probably he's, this will probably be on two times speed, but. It's positioned exactly over the center of its base. Even the minutest error in the angle of incline of any one of the sides of the base would have led to a substantial misalignment of the edges at the Substantial. Apex. Yeah. So this is fun. Cool. I will say, I think the popularity of these kind, the mainstreaming of this, these kinds of things, and I don't, I, I'm happy for Jake to have fun listening to this book and giving it the seriousness that it deserves, and and I'm happy for anyone of maturity to do the same. But I, I will say, I look with both amusement and uh, sort of what would one say, horror, trepidation, uh, displeasure at the mainstreaming of all this kind of stuff in the kind of independent Christian. Yeah, you should know he's going to go into world. ancient aliens. He's going to go into uh, psychedelics at various points. Like that's the kind of thing that I haven't gotten any of that in this particular right. book, but that's the kinds of places that Han- Hancock is going to end up. And I, and I think it's dumb um, that people are so excited about all this stuff right now. I think it's just a sign of social instability, just the same way that the Victorians loved their seances and their ghost stories and their afterlife evidence. And people like the great rationalist, Arthur Conan Doyle wanted to find evidence of other worlds and of fairyland and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I think we're in a similar boat now. I mean, they had the industrial revolution. They had the times they were a change and we feel the same kind of instability in our lives. And so we want to find things that are vast and that are transcendent out there. And I hope it doesn't sound corny or too reductive if I say the Bible is a good place to look for that. Your local yeah, church I mean, we've talked about this sort of thing on the that. Our UFOs episode yeah. and conspiracy theory episode. It's not that, I mean, obviously, I, that's why I said I've wanted by, I've seen this book a million times in my life. Like, I think it's okay for people to get a little kick out of it. I just, there are people, maybe even some people listening who take this, give this stuff way too much importance and. Mm-hmm. I think it can be very unhealthy to get fixated on this kind of stuff and to build yep. your life around it. So yep. that's my two cents. What's next? Uh, so I finished Extreme Ownership, like I said, with Peter. So we turned around and started Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage. Comes highly recommended from all kinds of different people. Like it's just vastly different people with vastly different interests over long periods of my life have recommended this book. And I've never picked it up. And it's kind of interesting so far, uh, but we've not really been hooked by it yet. I don't so. like those kinds of books personally. Yeah. I don't know why. What, I, what, what kind of books would it be? Well, any book about someone scaling Everest or mm-hmm. being trapped somewhere or 
hmm. being the guy that discovered this cave system. There's something, and maybe and maybe it's something effeminate in me. I don't. I really don't know. Maybe we could figure it out right now. Maybe we couldn't. But that whole genre, I find incredibly off-putting. I mean, I'll, I've been part of dinner parties where everybody's just taught, you know, I read this book and you read this book and I love Into the Wild and I love this and I love that and I like stories about mountain climbing and I... And, and, Into um, thin air, crack and, hour. Yeah, crack hour. And, and, I, and I don't... I, I'm not going to do the Agatha Christie thing. There's too many people I really truly respect that love that stuff. I think there must be something there for people. I just find myself on the outside of it. I do not know how to enter in. I do not care to read about the sufferings of real people if if it's that kind of book and I don't find it particularly I mean it's interesting in sort of a conceptual way like man wow the things that people go through to achieve things and the things that the human body can endure and the ways that we can overcome these hostile environments it's all conceptually interesting but I find it frightening and dispiriting somehow to actually have to live there for very long I don't know why I like I want my 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 horrors and my moments of transcendence to be fictionalized somehow. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd be more interesting if I had a theory about myself as to why this is. I don't. I just observe it with interest <laughs> that I do not like these kinds of books. So that's my contribution to the conversation. Yeah, uh, like I said, I'm not. I'm not hooked on it yet. I, th- I think. I, I think we might get there, but we'll see. I've not. I don't have a lot of experience with these types of books myself. The next book on my list is uh the weirdest one in the like the flip side polar opposite of graham hancock and it's six easy pieces by richard Feynman. so these are richard Feynman's famous lectures at caltech they're published in book form with picture with pictures of what he drew on the chalkboard Feynman is renowned as one of the world's greatest physicists of all time of the 20th century whatever nobel prize winner these lectures are famous for being extremely interesting and fun and accessible. The legend is that, like, you know, by the time he was done, like, they roped him in. He was, like, doing research. They roped him in to giving these lectures. By the time he was done, laymen off the streets and professors and professional physicists were packing the house. Audible's version of the book is the actual lectures themselves. Hmm. The first one has such horrible audio quality that it's almost entirely unintelligible. And I listened to it anyway. <laughs> After that, it's really kind of fun. And it's fun for, I don't know, a couple reasons. One, it's fun to just listen to people who are excited about what they do and sure. who are highly knowledgeable and who are gifted communicators. So like, there's this one side of it that's like, dude's coming out of left field. He's a physicist. But if he can make his uh, theoretical physics interesting and fun and intelligible, like there's things to learn as a, from him as a communicator and all kinds of things. He is a Jewish New Yorker and he sounds like a caricature of what you imagine a Jewish New Yorker to be. Like he's just like very much like whatever your shtick, your imitation, your imagination would imagine the caricature to be. That's like kind of what he sounds like, hmm. at least to me. But he also has a sense of wonder and awe and magic of it all that he brings to the subject of physics. So I don't know. I, I felt like I was missing a lot, but I kept getting the gist of things. And so like, so he, I don't know, here are a couple of examples uh, of analogies, right? Science, the art of science is like watching the gods play a game of chess, but you don't know they're playing chess. You don't know what the game is. All you can do is watch the pieces move. And you're trying to figure out how, the, how do the pieces move and what are the rules and what's the game that's being played here. And every time you sort of like figure something out, somebody castles and breaks everything and you have no idea what's going on. 
And so it's just constantly like observing and trying to figure out this game. And, you, you know, or, you know, the art of physics or science is like going to the beach and seeing a rock and seeing the sand and seeing a moon and saying, gee, I wonder, is a grain of sand just a smaller rock? And is the moon just a bigger rock? And if I understand the rock, can I understand the sand and the moon? Just stuff like that. Just kind of fun and interesting and uh, simplifying. And I don't know, how did I get on to reading Feynman's little thing? I think it started with a little article I saw that hit the news that said that physicists prove the universe is not locally real, which is a buzzy title. Um, and that led to some fun conversations with Joseph Bailey. I, I loved theoretical physics in high school. I loved my AP physics teacher a lot. Um, he was awesome. You can find, his name's Mike Kelly. You can find him on Jeopardy and stuff like that. He was fun and interesting and engaged like Feynman. And he was really smart about all kinds of things. Like his undergrad degree was in music. Like he was just like a polymath, you know, um, one of those types of people. As I don't know, like Feynman is like Ian Malcolm type of a, you know, like who Ian Malcolm is based on right. type of a guy. So I don't know. I think maybe that article and those conversations reawakened my brain to this sort of thing. And I think it, some of it's just fun. Uh, earlier in the show, I mentioned the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, and he has this extended section in there on science and math being one of the only places left where the pursuit of hard truth with any kind of humility is welcome. Hmm. And so it's a sweet place for anybody to dabble and detox from the world to just like, hey, like you live with so much ambiguity and everybody's asserting grayness everywhere. Uh, one good anchor point for just hard truth, reality, and humility is to find refuge in basic math and basic fundamental science, like just just to detox. And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And, and, and he recommended Feynman's lectures, which I'd already known about, but like there it was again. Then too, I think reading Fingerprints of the Gods and both like having the sort of like conspiracy theory side of it, but also being amazed at how we know what we know and how long we've known it, like the way that he talks about mm. astronomy and the calculations that the ancients made about the circumference of the earth and the positions of the stars and all that sort of thing. It's just like, how, do we na how did we learn to calculate longitude and latitude? How did we learn to navigate the seas by the stars? to plot eclipses on a calendar and project them thousands of years into the future, to, you know, all that sort of thing. Like, calculate the number of days it takes to cycle around the sun. Like, and then we read that stupid McCarthy book. Oh, I think all of that together just kind of said... Yeah, I was wondering if that had it, because that book, huh. if, if you don't know, is very um, physics-y. <laughs> yeah, it's physics-y, huh. and Feynman's referenced in that book in multiple places. And so then, yeah, when you can take and make theoretical physics fun and interesting to a pastor in Southern Indiana, you're kind of a special communicator anyway. So, and, and pastors have a long tradition of dabbling as amateur scientists, right? Jonathan Edwards didn't think it was a bad use of his time to write scientific papers on spiders. And Best book, like, wasn't it the standard on spiders for yeah. many years? And, and true, like, the more ways we can find to re-enamor ourselves with the wonder of God's world, the better. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that's poetry and fiction. And another way actually is the sciences. Like the sciences don't have to actually rob us of the beauty and wonder like it did Darwin. There are certain aspects, I think, of the sciences that can do for you what Chesterton can do mm -hmm. in terms of turning the world on its head or what a good mm -hmm. poet can do for you. So as long as you don't get ground up in the machinery of the philosophy and politics of 
I don't know, the men who try to use science to destroy Western civilization. So I don't know. Anyhow, that was a fun little thing. I can't imagine many people actually getting through that first lecture. I think probably skip it, but the second one is fun. And the farther downstream you go, the more you sort of like, it gets deeper and deeper and, you know, a lot passes over you. And if you didn't have much of a brain for, like he'll give you handles, like he's just going to do gravity. He's going to do the atom. He's going to do basic fundamental things, you know, but so there's that. And then I started Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. Chip and Dan Heath didn't made the stick and somebody in our Discord said Switch was better, hmm. but I did made a stick, I don't know, six months ago, sat through and Switch and, uh, I'm not sure I agree that it's better, but also it's just one of those like processed and chewed up and spat out downstream of persuasion and thinking fast and slow and that sort of thing. And so I've read, I feel like I've read maybe more source material. So it feels pre-digested in sure. a, a way, but yeah, basic concept. If you want to change your mind or want to change people's minds or persuade people, you have their analogy is the elephant and the rider. The elephants, their emotions, and the rider is the rational mind. And you actually have to get the elephant, not just the rider, but you need them both. Mm. Is that it? That's that's full list. That's the full list wow. of where I've been over the last, however, I think it's been a few months since our last sanity shelves. Maybe even more than that. Ben, any other books? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. There's a bunch of books. There's other stuff I started. I started a book by a Christian paleontologist called Bones of Contention, which which um, a cousin of mine gave to me. And it's actually really fun. If a book about, if an anti-evolution book on paleontology doesn't sound fun to you, you could be completely 100% forgiven. But this book is really fun for some reason. I mean, it's more technical than I follow at points, but mostly it reads more like storytelling or something. And I don't know, it's, I haven't, I haven't read a lot of, anti-evolution books. I've been aware of that stuff for my whole life, and I've never believed in evolution. But uh, but this guy is, um, he just gives you a lot of details about, enough details about paleontology to make you interested in it as a discipline. For instance, I forget how many uh, human fossil remains there are in the world, but but he starts out by telling you that most paleontologists will not, will never touch them. Because they're protected as though they're the rarest of jewels. And if a government has it, it doesn't matter that you're a credentialed paleontologist. They're not letting you in unless the circumstances are very special. So most paleontologists, the bones, the fossils they examine are reproductions, maybe from a long time ago, maybe crummy reproductions of those fossils. Mm. And that, and, and they, either, they either write their papers dealing with those reproductions or they write their papers, right, about the development of man and putting together these, these you know, fossil lineages that lead to, you know, homo sapiens or whatever from earlier descriptions of these fossils. So second or third hand sources. Hmm. You're just reading all this stuff and you're like, what? Is this reality? So it's just, it was, it's just, it's, it's very helpful so far. It's kind of crazy. Bones of contention. Um, bones of contention. There you go. Yep, he's a Christian. I had a uh, professor in uh, in college uh, named the Bijit Basu, who's the chair of the ge- geology department. Took a class of his called Theory Theory of the Earth, and uh, he would just say the the rock record doesn't support evolution at all. Man, he he was he's an Indian man, 
and uh, got a kick out of saying that Darwinian evolution is the sacred cow of Western science. You can't question Darwin because to question Darwin is to bring the whole system down. Mm -hmm. The class is called Theory of the Earth. And he made a case for holding to Darwinian evolution, but holding to Darwinian evolution as the only alternative to a belief in divinity or a god. And the scientific process mandates, according to him, that you simply must hold the most plausible theory until you have a plausible theory to supplant it. And so Darwinian evolution is not only is it not supported by the rock record, right? it is contradicted at every possible point. Mm -hmm. And he would just say this in class. Mm. And then he would say, as a scientist, you have to hold it, hold to it until you, until we come up with the solution, because the only alternative is to believe in God. And he just say that in class. I, I love this guy. And yeah, I did too. He was awesome. And and then he would say, and, and of course, and, and of course, we can't do that as scientists, right? Yeah, we can't just believe in God. We have to have some kind of rational explanation. But the problem is, uh, scientific progress on constructing a plausible theory for how we all came to be is basically at a standstill in the West. And it'll have to be the Easterns because the West is so opposed hmm. to politically to ad admitting fault with Darwin that it is politically incorrect to do good science and to question Darwin at the place, uh, Darwinian evolution at the places where it's necessary to begin right. constructing any kind of new system. And it'll be the yep. Easterns who don't feel the threat of Christianity, who just don't care. It'll be Indians, it'll be Chinese, mm -hmm. it'll be somebody else who doesn't feel the threat of Christianity to their politics that come up with the next great yeah. uh, unifying theory of, of how we came to be that finally supplants Darwin. And, that, and this, was, that, this was like the whole point of the class. <laughs> that's pretty fascinating. That's, um, that's, that's funny. That's a pretty liberating class to be in. Sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, man. I've just never, because of that class, I've just never, like, I was like my freshman or sophomore year of college. I've just never been threatened. Never by, felt the threat of it. Yeah. Never felt the threat of it. Just like, I've hung my hat on a Bijit Basu to this day. Uh huh. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, it sounds like it gave you some great handholds. Just, yeah. That's, that's really simple. This book feels pretty simple that way, too, in its own right. For one thing, it's just, a lot of it is so far is about how paleontologists make everything up. They just make up this lineage, and they're very um, they're very easily hoaxed. There's a lot of paleontology hoaxes. Piltdown Man is one that you might have heard of. Yes, yeah. of course. Yep, yep. But there's others too, and they're just it just seems like it's it's endemic because of the way that their discipline works and the way that they construct these these fossil chains and come up with these histories. It's just like you have to have a a meta narrative you decide on ahead of time, and then you have to fit the bones into that narrative, without probably even looking at you know ninety five percent of them mm. ever yourself, because you can't. You're not allowed. You can't get into the the sealed room in so it's like Moldova not, or it's whatever. It's not possible for you to do it without bringing some kind of presupposition to it. That's right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, speaking of interesting, people might be interested in giving to our podcast at Patreon.com forward slash Sound. Of sanity. If you don't want us to become fossils, that's how you do it. Warhornmedia.com forward slash give. Uh, we are recording this episode kind of far out, so we don't we can't say where our campaign is right now, but we could certainly use your support. 
warhornmedia.com forward slash give is where you can make a one-time tax-deductible donation. And the shelf is closing. Until next time, stay sane.